Romans chapter 11. In the book of Romans, as I've shared uh, these last few weeks, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are kind of parenthetical. Paul does this all the time. He does it in the middle of sentences. He does it in the middle of thought. Uh, last Sunday when we were in Romans, uh, we were preaching from, um, I think, chapter 5. And verse 11 starts off and in mid-sentence. He switches to something else. Uh, Paul always knows what he's doing. It's not the issue. Uh, I think part of the reason, you know, led by the Holy Spirit and a brilliant man, as brilliant as they come, uh, he's got a lot of stuff to cover. And so in Romans, the end of chapter 8 and beginning of chapter 12 go together. <clears throat> but there's an important part, and it's with purpose that he puts it here. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with Israel. You know, what, what is God's plan in terms of Christ for the people of Israel? Um, because what's happening now, and in, in this is written in, basically in the mid-50s, uh, you have the church becoming more and more Gentile, especially outside of Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, it is still predominantly uh, Jewish. And Paul uh, will go back to, to Jerusalem in uh, about 58 A.D., towards the last fourth of Acts. You see that? He, he finds out, and he's reminded just how thoroughly Jewish the church in Jerusalem is, which is good, because it was for most of the Jews. Most people who were there were Jewish. But Christianity... As it starts off Jewish in Palestine, as it begins to go out throughout the world, begins to slowly and deliberately become more and more Gentile. Uh, most of the world is not Jewish. Most of the world is Gentile. And so as you leave Palestine, even though there were some large Jewish pockets of people, uh, Antioch had some, Alexander and Egypt had some, uh, Rome had some, <clears throat> but as you go beyond that Jerusalem area, it makes sense that Christianity is going to become more and more Gentile. When you add to it that the Jews tended to reject Christianity. Uh, and you can see that, especially in the book of Acts, how Paul goes to Philippi and then uh, Thessalonica and Berea, and, and the Jews are just following him, driving him out of those towns. Uh, he ends up in Athens, and they're still coming after him, down in Corinth. Um, there was a pretty systematic rejection of Christ, especially among many Jewish leaders. So Christianity moves to become predominantly Gentile. And by the time you get to the end of the first century, uh, the last books written were written by John, uh, Christianity is predominantly Gentile, um, especially with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the place of the Jews, I mean, God, you know, God chose Abraham, and through Isaac and Jacob, there became the Hebrew nation. They're obviously so important, so important in, in the Old Testament. They, uh, they are the group of people from whom Christ would come. Uh, God gave the law to them. They, they set up and point everything to Jesus. And so, obviously, there's an importance to them. And so, in, in the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapter, Paul deals with that, and especially in the 11th chapter. It's interesting, <clears throat> at the start of each chapter, kind of Paul, you know, deals with some issues and, and kind of asks some questions about what's going to happen and what's going to occur to the Jews. Where will they go? Get out of Corinthians into Romans. That would always help. So in chapter 9, it kind of begins, um, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Um, verse 6 says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. No, of course not. And so there's this kind of question. In chapter 10, you know, Paul talks, uh, you know, we saw most of that last week, but brother, my heart's desires for my prayer to God is for their salvation. I testify they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so there's that, that concern for them. And the 11th chapter begins this way. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he says, may it never be. 
For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he asked a question. It's kind of a, it's written in the English. In the Greek it makes a proper way. We don't know. We may not write sentences this way in English. But he says, God has not rejected his people, has he? Uh, and, and Paul's answer is emphatic. By no means. He's not rejected his people. In fact, Paul uh, wants to remind folks that if you think that there aren't going to be any Jews or Jewish people aren't following Christ, he reminds them of who he is. I am a Jew. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Paul's original name was Saul. And of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, Saul, came. And so his family probably had that connection. So Paul is not here bragging, but simply from his own personal testimony, is reminding the people that he himself is a Jew. I think it's important for us to realize uh, that the single most dominant thinker in Christian history and thought is Paul. Now, I understand Jesus, and I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding who Jesus is, and he's over everything. I'm talking from a purely human standpoint. Paul influenced everything that happens today in all of Christianity. Uh, good and bad uh, from Paul. There are, there are groups that kind of reject Paul and his teaching, but they have to deal with Paul. If, if you... If you come to the Christian faith, Paul is the one who strategically kind of organizes the way we think, especially in the book of Romans, about Christ. There are some things that Paul writes that people struggle with, so they reject Paul. They need to have a rationale for doing that. Simply point out that this man, Paul, we forget, is Jewish. And in our Gentile Christian Western mindset and world, is influenced heavily by Paul. In fact, not only is Christianity influenced by Paul, but all of humanity because of the influence of Christianity throughout the world, throughout Western civilization, throughout the world. All of that falls on Paul. And probably, uh, as a Christian, I might be somewhat biased. Secularists may disagree, but more than Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Confucius, the way we think about life the way we deal with life on an everyday basis is probably influenced more by Paul than anyone else. And we forget sometimes that he's Jewish in his background. And we also forget he was antagonistic towards Christ. He was persecuting the church. He says, God has not rejected, verse 2, his people whom he foreknew. I mean, he selected them. He foreknew them before Abraham. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. It comes out of 1 Kings 19. Love, love over in the book of Kings, and I love the stories of Elijah and Elisha. I think they're fascinating, and I probably don't preach from them near enough. Um, in 1 Kings 18, the, the, the people of Israel has, the, the, has become, the northern kingdom has become predominantly gone over to pagans and worshiping the Baals. This is in the 800s uh, B.C., and, uh, and Ahab's father, uh, Omri, uh, got him married to Jezebel. Jezebel is probably the most wicked woman in all of the Bible. Uh, only the, the, in the Revelation, you know, the great whore of Babylon may be worse, but, you know, we know who Jezebel is, the real person. She's as wicked and evil as they come, and she systematically set about for the elimination and death of all the Jewish people, of all people who worshipped God, I should say, Yahweh, and made the Jews convert to the worship of Baalism. And uh, the prophet Elisha comes on the scene. There's this great battle, kind of, uh, but who is truly God? 
Yahweh or Baal in First Kings 18. And the Baal, because the Baals, because they're not really gods, fail. Yahweh prevails. And Elijah has all the prophets of Baal thrown down a cliff and die at the bottom of a ravine. You would think at that point he's pretty high and pretty excited. And Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he flees. And in his fleeing, he, he kind of whines to God. It's amazing when you think after such one of the great victories, one of the great spiritual experiences in all of Scripture, certainly the Old Testament, Elijah then turns right around and cowers at the hands of Jezebel after all that God had done. And he kind of complains to God, I'm all that's left. Have you ever been in that kind of place where you're telling God, look, God, I'm the only one who loves you. It's just me. Everybody else is deserting you. And that's how Elijah felt. And then God has to remind him in First uh, Kings, verse 4 says, The divine response to him is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And there was a reminder to, to, to uh, Elijah, you're, you're not the only guy I have out here. I have preserved 7,000 men. The idea being prophets, men who are dedicated completely to God. And so it's a reminder that God is always working, oftentimes in ways that we never see. Oftentimes with people we never see. And so um, in verse 5 then says, In the same way then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So he is reminding uh, is Paul to the people at Rome, who were primarily Gentiles, that there is still a movement among the Jews at his time of believers. I think it's important for us, and I have to be reminded of this, I am very Baptist-centric. By that, I mean I think Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, are as close to being what God wants Christians to be as any group, period. I mean, I just think that way. If, if I didn't think that way, then I'd go join the other group. If I thought Presbyterians were closer to what God wanted, I'd be a Presbyterian. Obviously, they're not. Um, you know, any of those other groups. And sometimes, you know, I'm guilty of thinking, you know, in heaven, God... Probably most of the people there are going to be Southern Baptists. We might let a few others in, you know, a few, few Methodists. And, and this, I like some Lutherans. My wife grew up Lutherans. I don't think any Episcopalians, because I don't know of any of them that are actually saved right now. And I just go through that thought process, you know, and then I have to remind myself, man, there are some really outstanding Christians all over the world. I think we forget sometimes, and all kidding aside, God. As Americans, we have to remember, God is not impressed with us. We are not God's chosen people. America is not God's chosen nation. None of that is true. Christians are God's people. And there are Christians all over the world. And I've shared this stat with you many times. By the year 2030, which is 11 years away, uh, somewhere around my 51st or 2nd birthday, right in there. Well, I'll be, I'll be around, though, Mike, so... <laughs> Yeah, I'll still be younger than you. Um, there will be more Christians in China than in America. Think about it. Think about Western Europe. The heart of the Reformation is now pretty much thoroughly lost. It's, it's hard to find a lot of communities, pockets of vibrant Christianity in Western Europe. Eastern Europe you can, but not Western Europe. I think we forget sometimes God uses us. He does not need us. 
I have to remember that as a pastor. God, sometimes I think, you know, God, you probably need me. To say, eh. God will use me occasionally. He doesn't need me. Until he doesn't. You know, I, I serve God, and I'm blessed by it far more than I bless anyone. I benefit from serving God more than anyone else benefits from me doing that. God can pretty much take care of everything. He just chooses to use us for our benefit, not for his. And Paul is reminding us of this. And, and, and every so often, I really have to get a hard dose of reminder that all over the world, God has used people in amazing ways that I might look at and say, man, those are, those are some strange kind of Christians. I, I have said many times, when I get to heaven, there are going to be people there I'm kind of surprised they're there. There are going to be some people who aren't there that I'm kind of surprised also. And, and this passage is a reminder to remove the arrogant pride away from not only our faith, but from my denominational ties, and I think probably from American Christianity. We are not God's people as Americans. We are God's people as followers of Jesus. We are blessed to live in America. Beyond measure, we are blessed. Beyond measure. And I'm so thankful I live in America now. But I have to remind myself constantly, don't get arrogant about my salvation. Kind of like I've been preaching on these past few Sundays. I was dead in my sins and God saved me. That's how we are. And Paul's saying, hey, you Gentiles in Rome, before you think God's through with the Jews, you realize he's got a remnant? He says it's by grace. And verse 6 says, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He says it's not on anything. The Jews, when, when Jesus came, the Jews thought they were right with God simply because they were Jewish and obeyed the law. And Jesus just destroyed that. And he, Paul's coming out and saying, listen, you Gentiles, you Gentile believers, don't think you have done anything at all to earn what God is giving you. It's purely by grace. Verse 7, and he's going to quote some scripture from Isaiah and Deuteronomy. Uh, and then in verse 9 from Psalm 69. Why then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hard. So God is saying, look, Israel didn't attain it. You attained it, I chose you. But the rest, it will harden. And then the, once again, same in chapter 9, he talked about the hardening of Pharaoh. Now he's talking about Israel being hardened. Why were they hardened? Because they rejected. God gave them over to their rejection. You know, Paul, Paul firsthand had experienced this. He had already been run out of most of Europe. They're all after him. He's, he's not yet gone in, in, in the back. He's going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to try to kill him. They're going to try to kill him in Jerusalem. They're going to try to kill him on the way to Antioch. They're going to want to take him to Rome and kill him there. I mean, the Jews are after him. God gave them over to their hardening. But, verse 8 tells us, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. God is punishing them for their rejection of Jesus. Paul is reaching back to the Old Testament, bringing them forward to point that out. But then, but then, this is what he has to say. I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? And he's saying, may it never be. In other words, they've stumbled but they're not completely done away with. 
But by their transgression, notice what he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Paul says this. The reason you Gentiles are coming to Christ so much is because the Jews have rejected Jesus. Because the Jews have rejected Jesus, we're spending time not with him, but with you. So, in Acts, Paul goes, and it's his custom. He goes to a new town, and he goes to the synagogue. That's where the Jews are, and he preaches Jesus to them. Sometimes there will be some who will accept it. Some pretty prominent Jewish leaders uh, had accepted the gospel. But eventually, they run him out, and the Jews throw him away. And then what does Paul do? He goes and finds a place of Gentiles. Normally, he ends up finding a place where he can be in working with Gentiles. And as Gentiles readily receive Jesus, he begins to see more and more converts. He disciples them. Paul stayed a long time uh, in, in Corinth and Ephesians, in Ephesus. He, spoke, he used those as a basis of operations to begin a lot of discipleship. And those two places were predominantly, overwhelmingly Gentile in the church's ranks. Why? Well, had the Jews accepted the message, Paul would have still reached out to Gentiles, but he would have predominantly focused in the synagogue and in those areas converting as many as he could because that's where his fertile ground is. Paul would go to a lot of places where they weren't Christians, but once he struck oil, he pumped that well as much dry as he could get it. He, he, when he found a group, he was going to work there and get as many to be followers of Christ to establish churches as he could. So he's saying to those Romans, their rejection led me and others to come to you. Verse 12. And he uses a typical Pauline argument, logical argument. If their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will the fulfillment be? In other words, this is one of those things. We had it last uh, week, uh, Sunday in Romans. How much more statements? So he says, listen, if, if because of their sin and transgression, if that amounts to a richness, the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles, what do you think their fulfillment will be? If, if their refusal benefits you, what will their acceptance be? He says, I'm speaking to you, who were Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. Now, Paul is saying, I, my, my ministry is primarily Gentile. Didn't mean that's exclusively Gentile. Peter's ministry was primarily Jewish. Didn't mean it's exclusively Jewish. In fact, Peter was the first person to really connect with the Gentiles when uh, he went to the house of Cornelius. But Paul, this, it's a little bit ironic. Paul was as Jewish as they came. He was a Pharisee. He was a brilliant Jewish scholar. And he was the primary apostle to go to the Gentiles that we have recorded. And so there's a little bit of irony in there. So Paul is saying, listen, I, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I, 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 I haven't come to Rome yet, but I've, I've, I'm dealing with Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. Verse 14. If somehow I can move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Now, he, what Paul is saying is, and this is, sounds kind of strange, out of envy or jealousy, well, it's okay. I don't know what happened because I don't hear very well, which my wife points out all the time as she's yelling at me for not hearing very well, <laughs> which you don't need to tell her I said that. 
So Paul is saying, if you're the Jewish people rejecting Christ, God moves away from them to the Gentiles. I'm hoping that makes them a little bit jealous. And by making them jealous, they'll decide to, to move towards you. You ever notice children, little, little ones, when, um, and some of your grandparents notice this, you got your grandkids, if you spend, if some of your grandkids or if maybe don't have anything to do with you, and so different grandkids or some other kids do, all of a sudden it makes those other kids who didn't want anything to do with you jealous. That's kind of what Paul is, is saying here. Verse 15 says this, If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now think about that. He says, if because the Jews rejected Jesus, that brought the opportunity for the Gentile world to come to Christ. What will their reconciliation be? What happens when the Jews move towards Jesus? He says, that will be life from the dead. Now the phrase life from the dead is an interesting phrase. There's different ways of understanding it. The best way to understand it is the figurative speech. What he's saying there is, it'll be like that which is dead having life. The Jewish movement was dying. Within about 15 years, the temple would be destroyed. And Judaism, as a basically as a religion that had some prominence, would cease because the temple's gone. And there would be this sense of slow kind of idea of dying in essence. What will happen when the Jews, from whom the promise of the Messiah was given, when they start coming to Christ? The most, the most enthusiastic Christians I have ever met are Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews, fulfilled Jews. Those people are on a level of evangelistic excitement and fervor that I've never seen in any of the people I've dealt with. You know, I've, I've dealt with Messianic Jews. They send us stuff quite often. They're very enthusiastic about wanting to come to our church. Um, here's what I can tell you. When, when they realize and come to Jesus, and all, it's like all the lights come on. And all of Scripture makes sense to them. And they have such a burden for their fellow Jews. In essence, this is, this is talking about and, and looking forward to a time when there will be a, a greater movement among Jews to come to Christ. Now, probably not since the early church have there been as many Jews coming to Jesus as there are now. There is that movement. Uh, one of the things that probably uh, marks at some point a return of Christ is will be a general movement of the Jewish people to Jesus. Hadn't really happened yet. It's larger than it was, but there really hadn't happened to that. There, there is in several places this expectation that Jews will start really turning to Jesus. Um, and that there's an expectation that lots of people will legitimately turn to Jesus as the gospel gets spread. And so when that happens, that enthusiasm, that spirit, that revival will spread. You look even at the history of America. We've had two great, uh, what we would call periods of revival, awakenings. And when those occur, when those periods of, of evangelistic fervor occur in our nation, um, back 1600s, and I forget the other one was either 17 or 18, 1700s, when those two occurred. And there have been some other pockets of revival. There is a mass movement of people coming to Christ. It's like, a, it's like a fever that gets caught that you can't shake. That's what Paul's kind of describing, a real movement. Um, he concludes by this way. 
If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now he's going to, we'll see this next week because he talks about grafting the branches. What he's saying is this. The Jewish people were set apart by God as for holy. They are the first lump of dough. They are the original root in the ground. If the first little piece is set apart, if it's holy, the rest is too. You may not see the fruit yet. You may not see the benefit. It may not have all come to fruition. But it's there. At some point, God's Old Testament people will join God's New Testament people in moving to Christ. Yeah. Make clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those who will tell you that the Jews, I mean, the Jews are God's people still in the sense of what they were called to be. I do not think at all the scripture tells us that the Jewish covenant uh, is still in effect. In the book of Hebrews, demolishes that. And I went, I went over all that last summer. Just destroys that. They're, the Jews are not God's people in the sense that they were in the Old Testament. But any Jew that comes to Christ, just as any Gentile that comes to Christ, are God's people. But because they were God's original people, there was still, she should expect, a special sense of blessing when that revival hits them. And the idea is, is that there will come a time of revival uh, in the Jewish communities that will be, uh, bring many of them to Christ. That's kind of the picture. So Paul is reminding these Gentiles, don't get arrogant. Now next week, we'll see some stuff about grafting on the trees and all that stuff, and he'll talk about that some. But as I said before, it, we really have to be careful, and I have to, uh, that in our passion for Jesus, in our passion for what we believe, and in our passion for thinking we are right, that we don't get arrogant. And I do that sometimes. And we've got to remember, God does things in the lives of other people and believers that he doesn't do in us. That's his prerogative to do that. God, God always has his options available to him. And Christianity is expressed in a Western culture. is different than Christianity expressed in Eastern culture. I mean, you still serve Christ, the same thing, but I'm talking about the way people worship, the way people evangelize, the way people do things. Uh, so last week, uh, we were on a kind of a tour of uh, South New Mexico and in, in El Paso. We're working with a uh, Hispanic congregation now called Bethesda out of uh, Anthony. They've done remarkably well in the last three years. Uh, the pastor came in about three years ago. They were just a handful of people. Their main campus runs 150 now. Um, and they, they're starting all these different works. And so we're going to work with them, probably develop a work. Uh, La Mesa, is that right? Is that where it was, Ryan? Is that it? Um, not the pronunciation of the location is what I'm concerned about. So going with the God location. And, uh, and we were looked at one of their locations in um, Sunland Park. And he's told us beforehand they're running about 40. And we went to the storefront. And if you were to go to our breakout rooms over there, that, that, the conference room over there, that's the size room they had to teach Sunday school and worship in about 35 to 40 people. And I thought, that would never fly. Look at y'all. Y'all are spread out all over the place. Some of y'all are taking two or three pews, uh, chairs up. Sorry, you don't have pews. 
I mean, we never do that. I couldn't imagine trying to do that here and teach to have Sunday school and worship in the same room. Are you kidding me? Had one bathroom. It would never work. And I'm reminded, I, I, I was just, I, I did that. And it took me back to a lot of times when I was in Laredo and the churches that we would see. But it reminded me of this. When people have a passion for God, He provides opportunities for them to do things that other people wouldn't begin to do. The passion and zeal for God as He's working in the lives of people through the Holy Spirit to bring them to Christ is an amazing passion. To see what God could do. And I was reminded, thinking of a place where 45 people, where 40 to 45 people were coming every week that was less than about 800 feet. That's an amazing thing. And so it, it, it struck a chord with me and reminded me how blessed our church is, how blessed I am. But we, we need to be humble, more humble than we probably are. And probably starts with it. So, I will entertain questions at this moment. If you might have some you would like to ask, and if I am capable of answering them, I'll try. Yes, sir. Could you elaborate on what's known as replacement theology? Yeah, I'm not, I honestly, I really, I, I know what that is, and I'm familiar with it. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time dealing with that, that concept at all. That's not a concept, the terminology I use. Basically, replacement theology is dealing with one group replacing the other, Christians and Jews and all that. I, I really, that's, I really couldn't because I just don't spend much time dealing with it, so I'm, to be honest, fairly ignorant of that. Yes? Yeah. They're just as Christian as we are if they're following Christ. Yeah. But a lot of the Messianic Jews still want to be considered culturally Jewish. Oh, yeah. Following the traditions and the, oh, yeah. and, you know, the, the, the historical Jewish and all that. So the word Jew could imply either a cultural Jew or it could encompass the, uh, the, the Jew that doesn't accept Christ. So yeah. the word Jew is kind of a, a misnomer because it, it may not reflect what the true belief is. Yeah, they usually use the term Messianic Jew uh, or fulfilled Jew. And a lot of the time uh, what happens is the word Jew has a more secular meaning of being cultural because there's this, there are different types of religious. The Jewish faith is broken up into three basic groups, Hasidic, Reformed, Conservative. And there's fundamental difference in all that. Um, and uh, most of my Jewish friends growing up, and a lot of them where I lived, were um, very few, none of them were Hasidic. Most of them eh, were probably conservative and some were Reformed. And uh, the way they looked at their faith was very, very different, uh, especially among Hasidic Jews. It's a big difference. What else? Yes, sir. Well, to be honest, those are areas, I mean, I understand all those things, and I'm familiar with all that. I just don't spend that much time uh, dealing with that in, in the world that I live in. I'm not Jewish, so I don't spend much time dealing with Jewish stuff. The Talmud was, you know, basically the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Um, beyond that, there were, there were whole, all sorts of various things of it. 
you come across the Talmud being quoted all the time and in, in, in dealing with the Old Testament. But you know, I, I am not a Jewish scholar by any stretch. My, all of my focus is primarily is in Christianity, so I don't have enough time to really get into all that. So I, I'm not really qualified or capable of commenting on those things. I, mean, I know what they are. I, can, I understand it. I'm just not qualified to talk much about it. Jews have synagogue usually either, depending on what they are, sometime between Friday night to Saturday night. Um, and as Christians, we have it on uh, Sunday. Most do, not all. Most, Some, uh, most Christians have worship on Sunday. Some still have it on Saturday. Some at other times. But yeah, most, most Christian groups worship on Saturday. Adventists tend of different types. Seventh-day and Baptists tend to worship on Saturday. Gregorian calendar? Right, and he changed it to Sunday, yeah. which is a pagan holiday. Yeah, most Christians worship on Sunday in the New Testament. It's clear in the New Testament, Sunday's when they worship. The source you're looking at probably has a bias. It's probably, it, as soon as they start going into Christians copy paganism, it's almost always a bias. It's almost always a little bias. So, the Gregorian calendar came about and was primarily a way to, to deal with, you know, calendars, going back all the way in time. Christians have worshipped on Sundays from the very, very beginning. Some would worship on Saturdays, but most Christians always worship on Sundays. And Paul talks about that. So you have, in the New Testament, you have, when you meet together on the first day of the week, and the reason Christians worship on Sunday is why? Resurrection of Jesus. So, almost any time I read something and they go to the, because of paganism, here's what happens. They try to take Catholicism and link it to paganism and say that Catholicism is just a Christian revision of paganism. It's not even close to being fair to Catholicism. Whatever your issues with Catholicism is, that's not how it came, all that came about. Now, there are some things that I get with saints and all that, I understand but Christianity has worshipped on Sundays from the very beginning. So I understand that can be a troubling thing to read that. But almost any time someone starts off linking whatever Christianity has come from, from paganism, I can almost guarantee you it is 100% wrong. Christians would not have had paganism influence their faith. Jews, Gentiles were pulled out of paganism. They're not going to pull it out and then fall back into it. Every, across the world... Remember, religious groups have many similarities, partly because many religious groups focus around the harvest, as is Judaism. So times of the year, like the harvest, uh, planting, uh, full moons, all those things factor in through different religions for different reasons, including Judaism, which, by the way, is the basic religious foundation of Christianity. So there are going to be the similarities between Christianity and Judaism will always be there, and Judaism and, and most religions have some similarities. So... I, uh, whenever I see someone start linking to paganism, I'm like, man, they do not know where they're coming from. And the Gregorian calendar came out so late to take centuries, the idea that it was centuries before the church began to worship on Sunday, when it was like immediate, it's just, it's just.
they had scholarship. I wouldn't, I'd take that source and burn it. Because you have to realize, when Jesus says, obey the commandments, we talked about that when we did the Sermon on the Mount. He came to fulfill the commandments of God. So he is the fulfillment and expectation of all of that. So the worship on, there is no particular day that Christians have to worship. We can worship any day of the week we want. We should probably worship every day of the week to some degree. And in fact, in all fairness to Catholicism, Catholics will have mass every day of the week in most places. So they're worshiping every day. The, the, the idea of fulfillment is to bring to completion. So when Jesus wants us to keep the commandments, his primary concern is to keep his commandments. Because he's the one that we follow. He did not command us on a day to worship. Troy, did you want to say something? Oh, I thought you had your hand up. I'm sorry. I you were just doing that. I thought I was sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to embarrass you by pointing you out. Troy's a very smart guy, by the way. Uh, he tells me that every day. And uh, so I understand, and, and, and yeah, you see that, and, but, but you have to understand, we have to have in our mind what Christ in fulfilling the law and establishing the priorities of worship. There is no longer a day to worship. You have to remember also in the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath. Uh, is the idea of Sabbath is to that day of resting in God, and it was a particular Jewish concept. And so, like other laws that were fulfilled in Christ, the necessity of doing that uh, is not on that one particular day. We need to have a day of worship. And when I preached on the Ten Commandments, I think I pointed that out. But that it's understandable that that can be confusing. It depends on how people present their argument. hope that helps a little bit. What else? Yes, sir. Uh, it's political entity. I look at Israel as a political entity. Um, it, totally. I, I have, it, that, to me, it has no bearing on anything to do with Christ. It's just, it's just a, it's a secular, it's the same thing as America, Britain, any nation like that. And the word nation in the scriptures is people groups. Not, it's not a government per se, it's a people group. So I, I think we should support them. I think uh, from a political, but, but I, I got into politics. I can tell you what I think about Israel, but you know, probably doesn't take much to figure out what I think about Israel from politically. Probably not a hard guy to figure out that my politics, but from a spiritual standpoint, they're just there's just a country like any other country. What else? Uh, okay, we'll see y'all. I'll see you Sunday. I'll be here. I'll be here and at Miranda.